Morning. Welcome to Springbrook. We're so glad you're here today. I tell you, I am so glad that that rain went a little south, aren't you? I don't know if you know this or not, but you know what today is? We have a church-wide picnic. We're going to be at Randall Oaks uh, at 1 o'clock. We're going to be grilling the teams out there right now, actually setting up. And that was so funny because I have not been watching the weather all week because I just didn't want to have any angst about it. So I thought, well, I'll just kind of pray. God will take care of it all. And so I made the mistake yesterday of looking at my phone. And all I saw was flood warning, flood warning, flood warning, rain, rain, rain. And I thought, my first response was I got angry. <laughs> I thought, doggone it. No, it's going to rain. We've been working so hard. And so then I started praying, you know, God, just don't let it rain. And I thought to myself, what if it does rain? Did God not answer my prayer? You know, where is God in the mix of this? And the more I prayed about it, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that through my prayer life, God is actually doing a work in me. This is going to be a great sermon series. We're looking at that, maybe doing this at the beginning of the year. It's talking about prayer and what is the theology of prayer and developing that. What does that look like in our life? But it was so funny because just in the last day, God has done more work in me just through those clouds <laughs> than the whole week. You know, prayer is about our coming uh, before God. Uh, with the things that are on our heart, our relationship with him is based on talking and listening. So I turn to God's word. I know God's so- sovereign. I know he's in control. I know he knows whether it's going to rain or not. But I am so thankful it's not raining right now. <laughs> and uh, we're glad that you're uh, here with us this morning. If you've got some time this afternoon, we want to invite you to come back at 1 o'clock at Randall Oaks. We've got a lot of food. We're going to have a great time. So hopefully everybody had that on their calendar. We've been talking about that for a while. And uh, so we have our church picnic coming up. You should have received our program on the way into the service this morning. And so I want to invite you to take that out with me now. And on the inside, you'll find uh, some news, some upcoming events in Springbrook. We've got a lot of exciting things uh, as we head into the fall. And we have a men's conference coming up in October. Uh, there's some information about that. Um, if you want to know more about Springbrook, there's some information about Starting Point, our gifts workshop. There's a whole bunch of stuff uh, that you want to look down uh, through there. Um, just to just kind of get a feel for how we can help you get better um, connected um, here at Springbrook. If you have not downloaded our app, our entire church calendar is on the app as well. So we want to help you to be able to um, get connected. One of the ways that we connect with uh, people at Springbrook is we just know that they're here and we know their names. And so on the inside of that program, you've got a welcome slip. So I invite you to uh, tear that off. Uh, you can tear that off now and just put your first and last name on here. Uh, maybe how you heard about us, uh, as much information as you feel comfortable sharing. Uh, if you're a first-time guest with us this morning, you can bring that welcome slip by the guest services desk. We have a special gift uh, for being with you, or just for being here with us uh, this morning. So you can bring, by, bring that by and get your gift. On the back of that welcome slip, we're going to interact with that in just a little bit. So we're concluding our series today on unity. And at, towards the end of the message, I'm going to give you an opportunity um, to maybe put some things on the back of that welcome slip. And so if you want to go ahead and you can t- take that out, fill it out, and then uh, just be prepared. We're going to spend some time uh, kind of processing through some of the things that we've learned uh, as we've gone through this series on unity. I know that uh, all of our sermons are online. You can get those from the app as well. But if you've missed any of the uh, past few weeks, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. Um, this was a uh, seven-week series. We finished up six weeks on what unity uh, in the body of Christ is all about. What does it mean to be unified in the church? It's really an important topic as we think about who God has called us um, to be together. Uh, We kicked off that series by understanding that we are not alone. If you are a Christ follower, you've been called to be in community uh, with other believers, and we need each other to encourage and sharpen one another. So we started the series on unity, realizing that there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. We need each other. 
And we looked at what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And we have been called not just to be Christ followers individually, but collectively, God has a plan and a purpose for each of us and for each of us um, together as well. We looked at the fact that Jesus Christ is the central figure of our belief system. We talked about, you know, we got the little bumper stickers of Christmas. We, we have Christ in Christmas, right? We have Christ in Christianity. Jesus Christ is the central figure of our faith. And so we spent some time looking about, at that as well. Then we looked at the importance of encouraging one another. We're to imitate Christ. We're to be Christ-like, and we need to encourage and sharpen one another in that. And then last week we looked at uh, the importance of unity as it relates to the fact that each one of us has a spiritual gift. And we bring those spiritual gifts together under the headship of Christ to accomplish all that God has for us um, together. And so we looked at spiritual gifts. I had a lot of people ask me about our spiritual gifts class. We actually have a gifts class that's going to be scheduled. Um, We're going to be kicking that off on October 9th. It's a three-week class. We meet right here at Springbrook from 7 to 8.30 p.m. And uh, if you do not know your spiritual gifts, um, I want to encourage you to sign up for that class. Um, It's a workshop. Just last week, classes are information. Workshops are interactive. So it's an interactive workshop about what spiritual gifts are. And so even if you know your spiritual gift, if you took a spiritual gifts test years ago, I would encourage you to go ahead and sign up for this class because we have an opportunity to develop a church culture around what different kinds of spiritual gifts we find in Scripture. So it would be a good opportunity for you to get get the refresher if you've already taken the gifts class, uh, if you don't know your spiritual gifts, I encourage you to sign up for that class as well. We've only got 12 spots open, um, so you'll need to register for that uh, pretty quickly. Uh, as soon as that uh, fills up, we'll have to shut that down, and we'll schedule the next class. But spiritual gifts are important. It's how God builds up and strengthens his body of Christ. This week, we're going to be focusing on and just kind of uh, focusing on uh, the facts uh, that are foundational for our unity together as it relates to the resurrection. We're going to be looking at some realities of the resurrection that are critical to understanding what it means to be unified um, together. There's a lot of different things that unify people. You know, we're unified by who we are in Christ and the resurrection. You know, we're unified throughout our, you know, you're unified in all kinds of things you haven't even really get, given any thought to. You know, last week I uh, was walking into Costco and I forgot my wallet. I, they wouldn't let me in without my Costco card. So I had to go back and get my Costco card. And, and then sometimes when I get there, I forget to show my Costco card. And it's like, I get so frustrated when I go into Costco. I don't know what your experience has been like. But it's like, and then they've got the app now, but the card's not on it. And so, you know, it's just, you can't even get in that store without showing your Costco card. I had one of my kids ordered some uh, contacts. And so the contact department's right on the inside of that door. And so I walked up and I was like, I don't have my card. I just need to buy my contacts. You can't get in without that card. I was like, but the, but the, but the contact department's right there. I said, sorry. And so then I, I lied and I had to repent because I said, my wife's coming. She has a Costco card. And I was snuck by and uh, way back at it, he goes, where was your wife? <laughs> I said, sorry, I needed those contacts. <laughs> it's frustrating. You know, what is it that binds people together at Costco? They want a good deal on food, right? So we're members of Costco. We're all of our, if you're, you have a membership at Costco, raise your hand. We're all bound together. We're, we're Costco members and we're unified and the fact that we want a good deal on food, right? So that's what binds us together. So if you're a Costco member, it says something. It says something about their food and says something about us wanting a good deal. So, but we're members of things all over the place. You know, Fitness 19, I go down to Fitness 19, and they had a card too, and uh, it was paper, and I washed it, and then I had to pay five bucks to get my new one. And then I had laminated, and, and I'm always forgetting the stupid laminated card. I am so grateful 
that now they can read your cell phone. So now I've got my thing on the app. So I can show, just sign right in. I go right, in, right, right into Fitness 19 just by showing my app. So what binds us together? Fitness 19. You know, we want to take care of ourselves. We want to exercise. And so I'm, I'm unified together with people at Fitness 19. I'm unified together with people at Costco. There's all kinds of things that unify people together in a community. Well, this is a community. And we are unified together because of our faith and, and because of the identity of who Jesus Christ is. And we're, we're bound together because of our unity and our belief of the resurrection. The resurrection is what binds us all together. You see, there's a lot of people that believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus in and of itself does not bind you into this community. Belief in Jesus is important, but everybody believes in Jesus. I've got friends that are Jehovah's Witnesses and they're Mormons, and I talk with them about the Bible. They believe in Jesus. They don't believe Jesus is God, but they believe in Jesus. You know, Muhammad believed in Jesus. You talk to somebody that's of the Muslim faith, they won't have any problem talking about Jesus at all. Gandhi, Gandhi believed in Jesus, considered himself, you know, good teachings. And so I've never run into anybody that has not heard about Jesus or doesn't at least believe that he existed. I've talked to some atheists that, you know, will say they're not sure he's God. But, you know, even somebody that doesn't believe that there's a God can't argue with the fact that there was a historical figure named Jesus. From a historical perspective, Jesus existed. And not very many people will argue with you about that. It's not just believing in Jesus that is critical. He is the object of our faith, yes. But the foundational belief for us that binds us together is that he is who he claimed to be. And that is reflected in the fact that he actually rose from the grave and came back to life. The resurrection is the foundation for what binds us together. It's belief in Jesus and the foundation of what binds us together is an understanding that he is who he claimed to be and he rose from the grave to prove it. And so the resurrection is critically important for us to understand and believe. It's one of the most important decisions that you can make is, what do you believe about Jesus? And it's one of the most important decisions that we can have with our kids, with people around us, because it affects our eternities. You know, church is not just a club. It's not just a group of people that get together to encourage themselves and and make themselves feel good about each other. You know, our, our unity is rooted in facts. It's rooted in the facts of the resurrection. It's rooted in the reality of the resurrection, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to be looking at four testimonies that lend themselves critical, just credible evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That's what we're going to look at this morning. If you brought your Bible with you, uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. And if you use the Version Bible app, um, you can go to that as well. You can follow along with 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. And then we also have an outline of our time together um, as well. And so you can follow along there, or if you brought your Bible there, or you can just listen as I read. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. This is Paul writing. And he says this, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, 
He appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of them who were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, although it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether it was then or whether it was me or they, so we preached and you believed. And so our passage this morning, we're going to look at four testimonies that point to the reliability of the Gospels. And those are facts that we need to be familiar with. They're facts that are foundational for what unifies us and binds us together as the body of Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. But let's open our time in prayer uh, for what God would have for us this morning. Father, I just want to thank you. Thank you for this day you've given us today. And thank you for the rain that takes care of the grass. And uh, but God, I thank you for the nice weather that we can come together and enjoy the picnic together as well. Uh, but God, I just thank you for who you've called us to be. Um, I thank you for your call in our life uh, individually as Christ followers and together as the body of Christ. Uh, God, thank you for the way you've gifted and raised up uh, this church for such a time as this. And God, we just commit our lives to you. We commit our morning to you. We look forward to all that you have for us as we look at the reality of the resurrection and its importance um, to our walk. And God, we just commit our time to you this morning for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Well, we just got through reading in these few verses the collective testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the the resurrection, this is all a waste of time. Paul says our faith is useless, and worse yet, we're misleading people if he didn't rise from the grave. And so the resurrection is a central theme that is foundational and important. If it were not for the resurrection, we could all go home right now and just uh, enjoy breakfast. The resurrection is the foundation of our faith and why we believe what we believe. And this morning we want to look at the the facts of the resurrection, these realities and four testimonies that point to that reality. And And the first reality, the first testimony that we find in that passage was from the testimony of the church. The church itself is a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to the church, reminding them of what they have. They have received what? They have received the gospel. They have received the good news. He's reminding them of what's to come. Jesus was resurrected, and you will be as well. He says this beginning in verse 1, in verses 1 and 2. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. What is the gospel? The gospel that Paul preached to them was the fact that Jesus is God. And that is important because if Jesus is not God, then our sins cannot be forgiven because only God alone could forgive sins. It's critically important that Jesus is God. That's part of the gospel. We believe that Jesus is God, that we believe he died on the cross for our sins. He took our sins upon himself and puts us in right standing with our Heavenly Father. It would be as if I was driving down the road and I broke the law and I got a speeding ticket. Jesus steps in and he takes that speeding ticket and says, I've got you covered. And he doesn't do that for us so that we can do whatever we want and throw caution to the wind and start speeding and just be reckless. He does that so that we can experience grace. He's giving us something that we don't deserve so we can experience grace. And as a result of that, we're grateful and it changes us and draws us into a relationship with himself. 
Paul says in Romans, but we, do, we have not been forgiven of sins so that we can go out and do whatever we want. Our forgiveness of sins, this grace that God has given us, changes us. It makes us grateful and wants us to serve and to become more like Christ. Jesus is God. He died for our sins. And then he rose from the grave. He came back to life. And he did that to prove that he was who he said he was. Through faith in Christ, the Spirit of God enters into us, gives us the power to live out our faith, and gives us the assurance of eternal life. That is the good news. That's the gospel that Paul preached. He preached it to them, and they received it. They received it. You received this good news, Paul says. And the verb from, that Paul uses here means that you believed it then, and you still believe it now. You received it then, and you still believe it. You are standing firm in, in your faith, and you are living this out. It's time-tested faith. It's not faith that he just believed last week, and all of a sudden they found something different. You received it. You have it. It's been internalized. And not only have they received it, but it appears as though they have grown in their faith, because not only have they believed it, but they're standing firm in it. When you're standing firm against something, that means something is working against you. You're standing firm in your faith against the things that are working against you. Not only do you believe, but you're giving it a defense for it. You're talking to people about it. When things work against you, you're standing firm. It's as if a wind was blowing on a tree, that firm is, that, that tree is standing as the wind blows against it. And so the believers in Corinth, they're standing firm in their faith. As a result of the good news, the gospel that they had received. You're putting your faith into practice. And as a result of these things, you are working out your faith. You are saved in a sense that your faith is genuine. You heard it. You received it. You're standing firm in it. And you have the assurance of salvation. The gospel has saved you. You stand in it. You received it. And then Paul says, unless you believed in vain. So when somebody makes a faith commitment, you don't know if it's been internalized or not. When the Bible talks about not making judgments against people, it's referring to the fact that we're to not make judgments against people with regard to their salvation. I don't like vanilla ice cream. Well, that's judgmental. So what? I don't like, yeah, I am. But with regard to salvation, it's a heart issue between a person and God. And Paul says, look, you heard it. You received it. You're standing firm in it. You got the assurance of salvation unless you believe in vain. And so the real question is, do you really believe in the power of the resurrection? Has your life been changed? And do you believe that Jesus physically rose from the grave? That's the reality of our faith and the foundation for it binds us together. We believe that at Springbrook. And if you're among those that truly believe and you understand the importance of the resurrection and you believe that in your heart, then you are a witness you're able to give testimony to the work of Christ. In the book of Acts, we see thousands of people coming to faith. And uh, people are making faith commitments. I often wondered about Peter's sermon. It says 3,000 people believed and they got baptized that day. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, did, did somebody review that testimony with them? Or did they all just run up into the water? And so you have this huge movement of the church, of people that are claiming to be Christ followers. And in Corinth... For the Corinthian church, there's a lot of people that really didn't believe that it infiltrated the church. 
And those are the things that cause division in their church. And that's what we've been looking at through this series, that there's, there's things in the church that cause division. But if we're unified in who we are in Christ and we truly believe that, those are things that strengthen us. In Matthew, it warns us about different types of soil. Our hearts are like soil. Sometimes the good news, the gospel, people hear it, and it's like a path. It's like a rocky path. It just falls on the path, and, and they don't do anything with it, and it dies. And sometimes seed falls into rocky soil and it grows, but there's not enough dirt and it doesn't take root. So people are really excited about their faith and like a week later it's over. That's rocky soil. And sometimes people make faith commitments and it's, 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 it's like weeds or choking it out. And, and, and they want to be believers, but there's so many things that are working against them. It's, it's affecting you know, their faith. And is it genuine? And are they able to live it out? And then it says some seed falls in good soil and it grows and it's fertile and it multiplies. For those that hold fast to the gospel, if you're holding fast to your faith, you are proof of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection. You believe, you receive, you stand firm, and you hold fast. And so these Corinthians who believed, you know, it's true for them and it's true for us today. That if you genuinely believe, you are proof of the power of the resurrection by virtue of the fact that you have belief in the gospel, just by virtue of the fact that you believe that, your physical body is going to be resurrected. You are a witness. Acts 1.8 says you're going to receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and you're going to be a witness. And so you believe something, you're able to give testimony to something that has changed you and it's proof of the power of the resurrection. You know, non-believers, as I've talked through the existence of God, um, as I talk to people about their doubts, is the, one of the easiest conversations to have is you cannot look at what happens on Sunday morning and tell me there is no God. I mean, seriously. I mean, people all around the globe are worshiping a living God, and we're all studying the same Bible if they're a part of the true church. You can't look around at what's happening globally and deny that God exists. Even if somebody says they deny it, the question is, is if I gave you enough information to prove it to you, would you believe then? If they say yes, then it's just a movement issue. And so what it is, is that you just need more information to make a better decision. The church, the, the fact that even exists is evidence to the resurrection. The church gives testimony to the resurrection. My faith story is proof of the power of the resurrection. The resurrection is real. I did not just believe in Jesus. I believe that he is God, that he died on the cross for my sins, and he came back to life, and he was resurrected, and it changed my life. And when I sit down to talk to somebody about those changes, they, can't, they, they can reject what I'm saying, but my testimony is true, and it is proof of the resurrection. Your faith story is proof of the resurrection. Saving faith is the first evidence of the resurrection. It's reflected in what we find in the testimony of the church. The second reality of the resurrection is found in the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture. Scripture is proof of the resurrection because it's authoritative. It's been around for 2,700 years, over 2,700 years. It's been around, it's withstood the test of time, it is credible, 
and it is, provides proof to the resurrection. Paul says this in verse 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So what Scripture is Paul talking about? When we talk about Jesus, the first place we typically go is the New Testament. Jesus is all over there. Jesus, Jesus, nice and clear. So typically when we're talking about Jesus, we have a tendency to go to the New Testament. But guess what? They didn't have the New Testament. Back in this time when Paul's speaking to these Corinthian believers, he's talking about the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament gives proof to the resurrection. The evidence that we have about the resurrection is not just a New Testament issue. It's not just in the collections of writings that are, you know, 2,000 years old. It goes back further than that. It goes back not just to 2,000 years, but the 2,700 years for the Old Testament. It goes back almost 5,000 years. That's the testimony and the proof that we have about the resurrection. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies about Jesus. Paul here is referring to the Old Testament passages. In fact, in the book of Luke, after Jesus has died, he's come back to life and there's been the appearance for some women that were at the grave. Um, Right after he dies, um, two of the disciples um, are walking back from uh, from Jerusalem to um, Emmaus. And in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, it says they they were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, they're talking with each other about all these things that have happened. They're talking about the death and they're talking about the fact that the body was missing. And while they were talking and discussing these things, Jesus himself drew near to be with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And, they, and, and, they, and, and, they, and he said to them, hey, what is it you guys are talking about? And what are you uh, holding this conversation on with each other as you walk? And they said to him, what things? What things concerning the Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in the word before all God and the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We hoped that he was going to be the one that redeemed Israel. Besides this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Nothing's happened for us more ever. Some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came and told us, saying that, that they had seen a vision of angels and what, that he was supposed to be alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and they found it just as the woman had said, it was empty. They did not see him. And Jesus looked at them and he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe that the prophets have spoken. Speaking of the Old Testament prophets. In verse 26 it says, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses all the way back, And all the prophets, all the way back, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and all the things concerning himself that would come true and be fulfilled in Christ. Jesus appeals to the entire New Testament of proof of himself. He said, this is why I was trying to explain these things to you. All of scripture points to the reality of the resurrection. And now we don't know which passages Jesus was referring to. He could have been referring all the way back to Genesis 3. Back in Genesis 3, we see the fall of mankind. Sin enters into the world. Adam and Eve, curses go ground. You've got pain and childbearing. And then in verse 15, we see the first gospel that 
you are going, he's going to bruise your head and you're going to bruise his heel. And so right there at the very beginning of Genesis, we look all the way forward to see the fulfillment in Christ. As you look back at Psalm 22, there are the very words of Jesus on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Back in Psalm, you know, Psalm 16, verse 10, we see the prayer of Jesus on the cross praying Psalm 16, verse 10. Don't abandon my soul to Sheol. Or he could have been pointing all the way back to Isaiah 53, which is a complete fulfillment of everything that we find in Christ through a sacrificial lamb that's going to be slaughtered and crucified and put to death on the behalf of those that it represents. The New Testament is not a replacement for the Old Testament. It is not additional writings. It's not part two of a longer book. Jesus Christ came to fulfill all that was written. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection are all foretold in the Old Testament. The New Testament shows us how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament and gives us the assurances that those promises have been filled. He fulfilled all the prophecy. He gives us an example of how we're to live our lives now as a result. When he's questioned about which is the greatest commandment in the Bible, he says you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your, love your neighbor as yourself. All of Scripture hangs on those two things. Jesus himself appeals to all of Scripture as evidence for the resurrection, that he is who he claimed he is. We have the testimony of the church. We have the testimony of Scripture. And then third, we have the testimony of eyewitnesses. What is the best evidence that you can think of uh, to prove that you came back from the dead? How about you appear? <laughs> you show up. I mean, he was dead, and then he showed up. That's one of the best proofs that he came back to life as he actually appeared. In verse 5 through 7, it says this. He appeared to, ah, I know it's up there. Let's say Cephas first. Yep, appeared to Cephas, and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of her are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. He appeared to all the apostles. Jesus appeared as proof of the resurrection. This appearance was not the figment of imagination. It wasn't wishful thinking. Jesus appeared to a lot of people that were able to give testimony. He appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, the rock, which was interesting because Peter would be one of the first ones to deny him. It's interesting that Jesus appeared to him first. And we, as a result of his appearance to Peter and Peter's belief and his faith, we've got First and Second Peter. Peter. Peter wrote some of the books of our New Testament and gives testimony to what he saw. He appeared to John, and we've got four books from John. We've got the Gospel of John. We've got John uh, 1, 2, and 3. And in 1 John, John actually writes this, that we saw Jesus come back to life. We saw him. We touched him. We heard him. We were with him. And I'm writing these things to you so that you can have fellowship with me. 1 John is eyewitness testimony from John, who then would go on to give his life for the fact that he actually really believed that. He wasn't just talking the talk. He was walking the walk. He saw, he heard, he touched. And then Jesus appeared to the 12 disciples. In Acts 1, we see that we've lost Judas, and they replaced Judas with Matthias. Matthias, because, and he was chosen because he had seen Jesus resurrected. One of the requirements 
to be a replacement was that you had to see Jesus resurrected with your own eyes so that nobody could call your testimony into question. And so he appeared to the 12 disciples. And then he appeared to 500 people. And I love the fact that he points out most of these people are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. A lot of people have seen Jesus alive. There are men and women that are able to give witness to the resurrection. Even before there was a written account of the resurrection. See, 1 Corinthians was written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There wasn't even any written word for them to appeal to. 1 Corinthians is one of the first books, and right out of the bat, what we see is, I saw this with my own eyes. And we have the benefit today of being able to look through all of Scripture to see the testimony accounts. But it's the testimony of those witnesses that are critically important. And then he would appeal to James. There's two disciples named James. There's James the Great, James the Lesser, James the son of Zebedee, and James the son of Appius. So Alphaeus, you got Zebedee, you got a bunch of Jameses in there. The other Jameses were mentioned probably with the other 12 disciples, so this is most likely James, the brother of Jesus, which is also interesting because he would go on to become the leader of the Church of Jerusalem. He would give us the book of James, but in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it says that he and his whole family thought Jesus was out of his mind when he claimed to be the Son of God. And so even his family was questioning him at the beginning. And so now we see James having a conversion and understanding that, wow, that's my brother. Talk about being connected to family. Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. These were all men who preached the message until their lives were violently taken from them. It's credible testimony. When I think about credible testimonies, you know, I can't help but think of some of our brothers and sisters that are in different parts of the world that are facing a completely different set of persecution than we're facing. We get chastised for sharing our faith in the workplace. You know, we've got missionaries that we support through our TTI initiative that are in China or in Africa or in India that are fearful of their lives for sharing the gospel. In fact, I just got an email from one of uh, the gentlemen that we were supporting as a part of our TTI initiative. We went out several years ago and we got to meet this young man. Um, he went through the TTI training and um, uh, has planted churches now. He's now planting, the amount of churches he's planted since he's just come through that training. He gave, he gave his life to Christ. He was trained and raised up and he's sent out. He's having a huge impact in Nepal. And so I get routine emails from him and so he's asked me, uh, not to share his name in case somebody's listening. He's asked me not to post anything on Facebook or social media just for fear of the government who is now cracking down on Christians. Um, they are as against the law to convert people to Christianity and you go up into some of the northern areas in Nepal, they're actually being killed. And so he's faced persecution and he keeps sending me pictures. He's got his backpack on, he's walking up through the jungle and he is just telling people about Christ. It's amazing to see the church start to grow in this area. He sent me a video I wanted to share with you. Watch this quick video. See the beautiful woman with the child, with their children. They have, they have come here to hear the word of God. They have listened to the gospel, and many of them have received the Lord today. They have got new life. Congratulations to them. 
for this wonderful fellowship. Praise God for this opportunity to be with this wonderful and lovely people. God bless them. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for praying for him. I'm so grateful we have an opportunity to be a part of supporting that work. It's amazing to see somebody walk in and just be receptive to the good news about Christ. They make faith commitments, they get baptized, and they come together, and you see the birth of the church. I can't help but feel excited about what that looks like in Acts. I mean, that is still happening today. And it's happening because of the faithfulness of those that have given eyewitness testimony to the power of the resurrection. This leads us to the fourth testimony, and that's the testimony of Paul himself. You know, there's nothing more powerful than the testimony, the personal testimony of someone whose life has been changed or has stood firm through the years in their faith and their walk with Christ. You know, Pastor Matt and, and one of our elders, Bill Atkinson, and I have been working on a go-to workshop to train people to share their faith. You know, do you have a faith story? Have you written that out? Can you share it with others? And when you are sharing it with others, do you know how to approach it so that it's not offensive? How do you engage in relationships and conversations? And so if you want to know more about how you share your faith story, I would love the opportunity to talk with you about that. On the back of your welcome slip, you can just say, I want some help writing my testimony. would love the opportunity to help you write out your testimony. There's nothing more powerful than your faith story of life transformation. You know, Paul says this of himself in verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely, untimely born, he appeared to me. That untimely born is uh, reflective of an untimely birth. It might have been a premature birth. Or even more graphic, it might have been a, a fetus that was lost or an abortion or something that was happening back in that time. Paul says of himself, he was untimely born when Jesus appeared to him. And he's focusing on his status as a liability. See, he doesn't consider himself credible because he was persecuting the church. People are not going to believe me. I mean, look what I was doing. I was so bad. I was doing all these things. Can God really forgive me? I can't tell my testimony to somebody because then I have to tell them about what I was doing. You know, one of the things that I think leads people to have a fear about sharing their faith is they, just like Paul, don't feel worthy. That there's nothing special about them. That's how Paul felt. He did not feel special. In fact, he felt like he was an aborted fetus. He had no sense of self. But look how God used him as he shared what Christ had done in his life. He was considered himself the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Paul's sense of self and identity was right where it needed to be because the second you start thinking it is about you or I've got a good story, you start to miss the point. It's about the fact that none of us have done anything to earn God's favor. He go on to say this in verse 10. But it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. That's that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 passage we had an opportunity to respond to this morning. We have been saved by faith, by God's grace through faith in Christ. Not by works so that no one can boast. There is nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. It is a gift. And Paul experienced that gift. 
Ephesians 2.10 goes on to say, For you are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ to do the works that he has called you to do. You have been called into a relationship with Christ so that you can accomplish the work that God has prepared in advance to you, for you to do. I worked hard, though it was not me, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether it was I or they, doesn't matter. We preached and you believed. Paul's testimony is a powerful reality to the hope of the resurrection. And so we have all four of these realities that point us to the foundation of what unifies us together as the body of Christ, and that is the resurrection. And so how do we respond? Each one of us must make a decision about what to do with the resurrection. It's not just about believing in Jesus. It's about believing that Jesus is Lord. He is God. He died for our sins. He rose from the grave. And that reality changes my life. We come to understand and we believe, just like the New Testament Christians do, just like every Christ follower does today. We must each make a decision about the resurrection. If you believe it, then you need to commit your life to it. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 32, Jesus says this about himself. People are going to be gathered to me. And I'm going to separate people. One, as a shepherd, separates the sheep from the goats. I'm going to place the sheep on my right. I'm going to place the goats on my left. Then he goes on to say, then the king's going to say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, and inherit the kingdom of God that has prepared from you from the foundation of the world. And to the ones on the left, he says this beginning in verse 41. Then he'll say to those on the left, depart from me. You're cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous will inherit eternal life. There is no gray in the middle of how to have a relationship with Christ. You either do or you don't. If you say, I think, then you don't. The reality of the resurrection has got to come to bear in your life with assurance. And if you've never given your life to Christ, then today's a great day to do that. You can commit your life to Christ. You see, one of the things that binds us together at Springbrook is our unity and the belief of the resurrection. And we want others to hear and believe and stand firm in that faith. And if you've never had an opportunity to do that, it's as simple as, Understanding that and believing it in your heart. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes in you and makes you new. If you've never had an opportunity to place your faith in Christ, it's as easy as saying, Jesus, I know you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you were resurrected from the grave and that you're going to come back and take me to be with you to the eternal paradise, to the eternal life that you promised for me. And that's as simple as that. And one of the marks of obedience is baptism. So if you've never had an opportunity to be baptized, I'd like to have an opportunity to talk with you about that. The most important decision that you can make is what do you believe about Jesus and the resurrection? We, we preach it, and I pray that people hear it. And our church is, comes alongside the people to help them stand firm in it. And that's why we exist. The resurrection is foundational for what unifies us together as the body of Christ. And so as you think about your next steps, maybe today you just need to make a decision. Step one would be, I need to make a decision for Christ. 
On the back of that welcome slip, there's a little place to say, I want to know more about our relationship with Christ. I'd love the opportunity to pray with you about that. Pastor Matt, I meet you. We'll have one of our small group leaders meet with you. Making a decision for Christ is our first response. And if you have already done that, and you're thinking to yourself, I already knew this, then your testimony is a powerful witness that God can use in the life of somebody that does not have what you have. And if you have a relationship with Christ, your next step might just be to share it with others. And if you want some help figuring out how to do that, we'd love to help you do that. You know, we've got our workshops designed to help people share their faith. We have events that you can invite people to. We have small groups that we are praying will go out into our community to have an impact. You can have an impact in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, with your friends. Whatever you're doing, look for opportunities to share what you have in Christ with others. And then if you want an opportunity to join the mission for what God's doing in and through us here at Springbrook. That's what Starting Point's all about. Hey, I, under, I believe this, and I want to be a part of what God's doing to reach this community for Christ and building disciples. If you haven't been through our Starting Point workshop, that's a great way to jump in and get connected to what God's doing. If you, haven't, if you don't know your spiritual gifts, you know, jumping into the spiritual gifts workshop, we have all kinds of onboarding opportunities for you to help you to continue to grow and be strengthened in your faith. You just need to let us know how we can help you do that. So on the back of that welcome slip, um, you can just indicate your interest, and I'd love the opportunity um, to talk with you about that. Well, we're going to be kicking off uh, a new series next week. We're finishing up a series on unity, and uh, it's been an important series for us. Um, as I think back on these uh, past, you know, six, eight months, this church has just been through a lot of transition, hasn't it? I've experienced it. I know you have as well. You know, we started off beginning of the year, the beginning of a transition, talking about the book of Joshua and about how God is going before us to encourage us in our faith that we can trust God that he's got a plan for each of us individually as a church. So that series was designed to encourage us as the body of Christ that God is in control in the midst of our transitions. Then we went through the book of Malachi. We looked at the different roles. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? How does the Bible influence our life? And and where do we go when we're looking for answers? And we went through Malachi and looked at the different aspects of living out the Christian life. This series was intentionally designed to help us to think about who we are together as we think about the future that God has for us as he leads us in the next year. This series was designed to help us get our minds around the fact that God is in control. There is a way that we're supposed to be living our life. I know what I'm supposed to be doing, and we are unified in that. This was an intentional series to help us be unified in our faith. As we head into this next series, Conversations with Jesus, it's going to take a little bit of a different turn. This next series is going to be about relationships. And so when we think about Joshua, there's knowledge, there's information that we need to know. God's in control. When we think about Malachi, there's, there's ways that we're supposed to be living out our life. That's knowledge. When we think about what it means to be unified together, that's knowledge. We have, we've been helping people to understand what's important. And so it's all been knowledge space. This next series is going to focus on relationships. And they're going to be focused on, well, how do you feel? And so we're going to be asking feeling questions. We're going to be looking at Jesus when he sits down to have a conversation with somebody. We're going to be looking at a series of one-on-one conversations. And those are completely different than what we're most accustomed to. In fact, most of us don't know what those conversations even look like. We live in a culture that's inundated with texting and Facebook, and most of our communication is done this way. I've got a rule. If you ever send me an email and it goes back and forth more than once or twice, we probably need to talk to one another. Because email is for communication. 
Here's some information. Oh, here's some information back. Here's some information. If that happens more than once or twice, then we need to stop and we need to pick up the phone. 5% of communication is words. It's just not effective. 45% of communication is the tone of my voice. And so if, at least if I call somebody, I've got a 50% chance of communicating what needs to be communicated. i still got a 50% chance of messing it up. It's not until we sit face-to-face with somebody that we're able to have a communication and have a conversation. And so we're going to be looking at this next series, and it's going to be something like this. It's going to be an intentional walking away from over here and sitting here. And so we're going to sit, and we're going to have a conversation. And so it's going to be as if uh, we're going to have this conversation, and then we're going to get to listen in to conversations that Jesus is having with people. And so this takes time. First of all, it's awkward, because trust me, it's awkward sitting over here thinking, well, I wonder what they're thinking. What's he doing over there? <laughs> It's kind of awkward. It's awkward when we sit down and have conversations with people, isn't it? Hey, I need to talk to you about something. What's wrong? And so this is intentional. This does not happen by accident. So you don't have conversations by accident. In fact, next week we're going to kick off this series. We're going to look at one of the first conversations that we're going to look at is somebody that sneaks off in the middle of the night to go have a conversation with Jesus because he doesn't want anybody else to know. It's the most bizarre time to want to have a conversation. Can you imagine somebody knocking on your door at 3 o'clock in the morning? Hey, I need to talk to you about something. And Jesus lets them in and they have this conversation. And we're going to listen in on these different conversations. Nine times we're going to look at nine different one-on-one conversations that Jesus is having with people as we look through the book of John in these conversations. And what are some of the things that we can learn from them? So next week we're going to have a conversation. I'm going to have somebody with me. We're going to have a little bit of a conversation. You're going to get to listen in on it. We're going to have some fun with that. Then we're going to go right into Scripture and we're going to start looking at conversations that Jesus has with people through the book of John and we're going to look at the principles and the lessons that we can learn from them. Does that make sense? I have to apologize to our small group leaders. Matt and I were working on the curriculum last week. We had a problem with the printer. It wasn't a problem with the printer. It was a problem with the printees. So we didn't get our small group curriculum printed out. But we're going to have that ready next week. You'll get a PDF for it. And we'll have all that material available next Sunday. We're going to have a great time going through uh, the small group curriculum together. But I want to share one thing with you in closing. This next passage is from um, 1 Corinthians you put that, yeah, 1 Corinthians 12, 4, 6. There's different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. Spirit gives us gifts. That's where we got our power. There's different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Jesus is reflective of commitment. There's different kinds of working, but the same God. Creators working it out where we get our wisdom. It's kind of a Trinitarian approach to kind of how we learn, actually. I've got another graph I want to share with you. It's just a circle. We've got three colors. We see that uh, in the Father, we find wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, you'd ask the Father. So we get wisdom from the Father. That's our head. And then we have the Son, which is reflective of commitment. Jesus, although he was God, did not cling to that right. He gave up that right, became human, to die a death on a cross for us. And so he's reflective of commitment. Then we have the Holy Spirit, which is the source of our power. And so typically people operate in one of those three areas. Our community focuses on knowledge. We've had uh, over 200 people go through our spiritual gifts class at Springbrook, and one of the things that we do is we help people think about how do you even think about information. Almost 50% of the people that have gone through that gifts class, and I think it's reflective of our community, think information-wise. Some people are sitting right here this morning thinking, well, okay, what was the information? What was I supposed to learn about it? And what am I, you know, it's all information. And so a lot of people are motivated by information. Sometimes people are motivated by commitment. They're more reflective. They're in that red color. And you tell somebody, it's like, look, this is what we need to do. And they think, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And so if my wife and I are sitting there and somebody tells that, you know, fill out your welcome slip, 
My wife's going to take that welcome slip out and she's going to fill it out. You know, it's commitment. I'm going to do what I've been asked to do. Some people want to know why. Some people just do it. And then some people are blue. They just wonder, well, how do I feel about that? They ask feeling questions. 20% of our church is feelers. 50% of our church is wisdom and knowledge. And about 30%, somewhere around there, under, under 30, is commitment. And so our church is really high on the green and the red. We're constantly coming into this thinking, okay, what are you going to have for me? What do I need to know? What do you want me to do? And we're going to stop and we're going to look at these conversations with Jesus and we're going to come at this next series from a relational perspective. And so I just want to prepare you for that because it's going to be a little bit of a shift than coming into thinking, hey, what are you going to teach me? We're going to start talking about learning how we feel about what we're hearing and, and how does that look in my life? So I'm really excited about this series. Right now we've got uh, 20 small groups. If you're interested in jumping in on one, springbrook.org slash sign up. I know a lot of our groups are full. If you are interested in hosting your own group, um, you can let me know. I'd love the opportunity to talk with you about how to host a group in your house. Nine weeks and then you're done. What happens when it's over? You're done. If you want to keep going, we'll have a conversation. But it's an opportunity for people to just get together and to process through as a group what we're learning together on Sunday mornings. It's going to be a great time. I'm looking forward to what God has for us. I invite our ushers to come forward and we want to collect our tithes and offerings. I want to get those welcome slips uh, from you as well. Uh, but let's just pray as we uh, bring our time to a close. Father, I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And uh, God, I thank you for the power of the resurrection. Uh, God, has, give us opportunities to speak uh, into that reality uh, with those around us. God, just encourage us in, in our faith and in our walk. Help us to be able to stand firm not just to hear it and to believe it, but to stand firm in it and to share it with others. And God, I just look forward to all that you have for us. And thank you for uh, this church, for the work that you're doing in and through it. I pray for our missionaries that we're supporting, whose lives are on the line as they share their faith. Uh, God, I pray for their safety. I pray for our effectiveness at reaching this community for Christ. We look forward to all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.